Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. We're still on a bit of a break here at the podcast studios, so I thought we would replay a prior podcast where we talked with Lee Drutman back on March 22nd, 2020. The podcast is a year and a half old now, but much of the content is just as relevant today as last year. Also, Lee Drutman recently published an article in the New York Times along with a questionnaire that you may find interesting. You can answer the questions on the questionnaire, and in real time, the questionnaire analyzes your answers and then summarizes your political perspectives on a two-dimensional grid. One axis measures your degree of economic conservatism. The other measures the level of your social conservatism. Also plotted on this chart are six different political parties, and the graph calculates which party is closest to your results. I highly recommend you have a look. I provided the link to the New York Times article in the show introductory notes. I hope you enjoy hearing from Lee Drutman on tonight's episode of the Alliance Party After Dark. Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on March 18, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Lee Drutman, a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. Lee is the author of the freshly published book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. And back in 2015, he published the book, The Business of America is Lobbying. He's also the winner of the 2016 American Political Science Association's Robert A. Dahl Award, given for, quote, scholarship of the highest quality on the subject of democracy. Lee also co-hosts a podcast called Politics in Question and writes for the New York Times, Vox, and 538, among other outlets. He's considered an expert on lobbying, influence, and money in politics. Lee holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of California, Berkeley, and a B.A. from Brown University. Lee, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. It's indeed a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for joining us this evening. It's great to be with you. Hey, thanks. Well, you know, I've I got to say that I've I've been reading your book, and um, I, it's uh, the book, The Doom Loop, which is fresh off the press. And I have to confess, I just keep stopping to highlight passages, and quite frankly, sometimes I just you know have to put the book down. Now, a good book is one you don't put down, but this one I actually have to put down because. I need to let the thoughts and ideas soak into my head for a little while. And uh, I must say that you build an excellent description of how the country immersed itself into the highly bipolar duopoly that we see today. And having lived through a few decades of history myself, more than I care to admit, uh, I, uh, I remember a lot of the events you discuss. But your insight really has me going back over my memories and getting those aha moments. And I just wish I would have had those uh, insights back when this stuff was happening. Well, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? <laughs> exactly. So I want to uh, just just jump right into the lake right here. And I know we have a limited amount of time today, but um, could you do the best you can to at least uh, sort of walk us through how we, this country, got to the point of extreme duopoly in this country? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. So in the book, I start the history at uh, mid-century, 1950 or so. Uh, and I talk about a report that came out in 1950 by the American Political Science Association uh, called Towards a More Responsible Two-Party System. Now, political scientists at the time, or at least some political scientists, thought that the problem with American politics was that parties were these incoherent, overlapping messes that didn't really stand for anything. 
They were just these sort of containers of all these different state and local parties. And as a result, national politics was very parochial. And voters didn't have really a clear understanding of what they were voting for when they voted for a party. And parties didn't have a, a clear program when they got into government. And political scientists said, well, this is not a great situation because voters should be able to uh, vote for a party that stands for something. And they should be able to hold that party accountable because they actually had a program that they put forward uh, and tried to implement. Now, uh, one of the criti other criticisms of the party system at that time around 1950 was that it suppressed the issue of civil rights, that the sort mm -hmm. of broad bipartisan national consensus was built on uh, a detente over uh, maintaining the Jim Crow South between Democrats and Republicans. Now, uh, as we know, that uh, eventually uh, came to the fore in, in the 1960s. There was a tremendous civil rights revolution, and that set in motion a long realignment of the two parties uh, and uh, increasing nationalization of American politics, so that instead of having these two broad coalition parties uh, that were largely overlapping uh, and you know, largely centrist, we had one party of cultural conservatism and one party of cultural liberalism, uh, one party for rural and exurban America, one party for cosmopolitan urban America. And uh, we have nationalized elections in which the control of power in Washington is up for grab in every election now. It's been the way been that way for almost three decades. And uh, both of these factors, uh, having a politics increasingly organized around cultural conflict and having very close nationalized elections, has escalated this hyperpartisan doom loop in which the parties draw very sharp distinctions, create these existential stakes around every election, and it's driving us all crazy and it is making our government dysfunctional. And that's where we got to where we are today then. Um, but could you sort of discuss then what the, what the results are on this, uh, on, the, on the American public? Because, you know, um, this extreme duopoly, uh, you cited in your book that it demotivates the average voter. So especially those voters in the lower end of the economic scale. So, I mean, what are the, what are the consequences of this action? Well, the consequences are uh, many. I think the most, you know, certainly it, it demobilizes a lot of voters because when you have one party uh, of the cities and one party of the country, you wind up with a lot of elections that are just not competitive. Uh, and so most voters feel like their votes don't matter because it's true that their votes don't matter. But I, I think the most fundamental problem is that democracy uh, depends on a sense of shared fairness and legitimacy in, in the process particularly the process of elections, process of rulemaking. And what we have now in America is a political process uh, in which uh, both sides view the other side as illegitimate and a, and a cheater. And you know, I really worry what happens in, in November 2020, uh, now that we're recording this, uh, and it's clear that coronavirus is, is going to be a, a factor uh, there, there may be a lot of ways in which states move to new uh, procedures that uh, create some doubt among potential losers. Uh, I mean, elections, democracy depends on a, on a sense that there is some sort of shared fairness and a process for resolving uh, 
disagreements and disputes that everybody agrees is fair. And if the only fair process is a fair process in which your side is the winner, uh, then we don't have a democracy mm-hmm. or we run the risk of, of slipping into some sort of authoritarian or semi-authoritarian state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a lot of the people that, you know, it, it, that you say are like uh, perhaps dis- feel disenfranchised or as if their votes don't matter, they don't partake at all, right? I mean, these are the people that are kind of in the middle of this great chasm and you have like all the uh, the extreme right on one side, extreme left on the other side. And, and so the people in the middle, um, they kind of get lost, right? And they don't get to partake in any of the um, legislation going on or any of the decisions that are being made. Well, I... I, don't, I actually don't think it, it, it makes sense to think of politics on a linear left-right spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actual the actual center is on a single line is, is not actually that big. What you have are a lot of voters who feel turned off by the process, uh, but I wouldn't call them centrist or moderates. I wouldn't consider them in the middle. Uh, often they have extreme views on on different issues. There are a lot of voters who feel cross-pressured who are socially conservative but economically liberal, which Mm -hmm. is sort of what Trump pretended to be in the 2016 campaign. There are some voters who are economically or fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and and both of those groups of voters don't really have a party. There are a lot of voters who just are a little bit all over the place, and you know, frankly, a lot of voters who have just sort of checked out of the process entirely. And it's not necessarily because they have moderate views or feel, uh, you know, or somewhere in between the parties. It's just that they don't feel that either party really really speaks to them. They feel like nothing that much changes regard for them personally, regardless of who's in control. And they just see a lot of fighting and bickering. And neither party is really trying to reach out to them and mobilize them and incorporate them because it turns out that. When you only have about 40 or 50 congressional districts that are competitive at most, you know, maybe five or six states that are competitive, uh, most voters are just ignored, mm-hmm. uh, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't partake at all then. Do you, do you ever get the impression that, you know, parties sort of invent issues to separate themselves? Though? I mean, like, I remember years ago when um, I think it was George H.W. Bush was president, uh, the whole thing was about flag burning. There was this there was this proposed constitutional amendment against flag burning. And personally, I've never known anybody to burn a flag. I never knew anybody that wanted to burn a flag. But yet, you know, it was I felt at the time was a wedge issue that was being forced upon us to sort of drive us into our corners, you know, like family values or gay marriage or gun rights and so on. Um, so I think that, you know, when you get people in the middle, um, they try, I think a lot of times through the, through the um, uh, perhaps through the media, they try to drive people into their corners to, to perhaps uh, um, get more people on board with these, uh, with these manufactured issues. It's just sort of my observation, though. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a, a fair observation uh, that a, a lot of the conflicts are somewhat manufactured. I mean, we think more recently about the uh, this this caravan issue in the 2018 midterms that, you know, mm-hmm. that was, we heard a lot about the caravan from Central America, the influx of, of, of migrants coming. And then after the 2018 midterms were over, we didn't hear another word about it. Right. So that seems certainly like an invented issue. Uh, but uh, I mean, what that issue represents is a larger 
cultural divide over immigration. So it's, while the issue itself might be phony, there is, it stands in for something larger. Same with the flag burning issue, which is not so much an issue as a, as a conflict over values. Who, mm-hmm. who is the true party of American patriotism? Uh, so, you know, I think there is a confusion that a lot of people have about issues versus partisanship. Now, most voters are not really ideological voters because most voters uh, don't follow politics all that closely uh, to have what, you know, engaged, part- engaged people might think of as an ideology. It's just, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of opinions on issues, somewhat random, uh, but are certainly flexible depending on what they hear. So, again, you know, I think it's not necessarily helpful to think of a, of a left, center, right mm-hmm. spectrum as an ideological spectrum, but to think about left versus right in our politics as this hyper-partisan binary in which both parties are trying to demonize the other party as unacceptable, as evil, as extreme, as even un-American, uh, because what we have set up in our majoritarian strong two-party system is a, a binary conflict in which everything has to be zero-sum by nature, because that is the mm-hmm. logic of a binary conflict. And in a binary conflict, you can win just by being the lesser of two evils, and you become the lesser of two evils by making the other side seem really, really, really evil. But there is no phrase, lesser of three evils, and this is a Fun fact, a little bit of research I did when doing my book, I, I tried to find, is there any use of the phrase lesser of three evils? And the one uh, the most, the one usage I found was it was the original title of a martial arts film, uh, which was later renamed Fist of the Warrior. It was apparently not a very good film. I haven't seen it myself. Uh, but uh, apparently that title didn't do very well. So the producers renamed it. That's probably why you didn't hear it that much then. Uh, yes. Unless you're a big fan of, of uh, martial arts films. Um, not particularly, no. I did study it for a little while, but I uh, studied martial arts for a while, but I didn't really get into the films at all. Um, so uh, so we, we talk about the two-party system, and, and um, I think that uh, – it's one question I had right here regarding um, – the inevitability of a two-party system, because we have this plurality system of voting, which uh, it does sort of force you into a binary choice, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's either you know, you're 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 um, you know to you know talking in about lesser of two evils, you're you're picking lesser of two evils rather than the greater of two ideals. But in either case, it's always two, right? And I think um, isn't that kind of an outgrowth of the fact that um, our system of voting is this plurality voting system where we really can't vote for more than one person. We can't like do, um, what I'm angling for here is like a ranked choice voting or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, this, if this were a visual podcast, visual medium, you'd see me putting my finger on my nose, uh, (laughs) the issue on the nose. It's, it's not, we have two parties, not because Americans want, just two parties. In fact, if you poll Americans, two-thirds of Americans say there ought to be more than two parties. We have two parties because we have this antiquated uh, 15th century electoral system of plurality voting that treats third parties as spoilers. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's just an accident of history because when we uh, started our democracy, that was the only system that was available. And for some reason, we've kept it. 
even though most of the world, uh, most of the advanced democracies in the world now use some form of proportional representation. And you mentioned ranked choice voting, which I'm a big supporter of, uh, particularly the multi-winner form of ranked choice voting, which is used in Ireland, Mm -hmm. and it generates a, a, a form of proportional representation in which you can have multiple parties. And I think democracy just works a lot better with multiple parties. And I mean, there there are limits to that. I'm not suggesting that we should become Israel with like 14 or you know 17 parties or however many parties mm-hmm. they have in the, the latest election. Uh, but I think the, the the reasonable number of parties would be uh, between four and six parties. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do that? I mean, how do you clear the the path toward a transition to multi-party politics? I mean, the, the two the the two dominant parties out there right now are very much entrenched and fortified. And so it seems kind of an onerous task to try to you know, reach the castle walls. Uh, do you have any suggestions on how we should go about that? Well, I think we're already starting to see the revolution. We uh, now have one state, Maine, which has ranked choice voting. It's still the single winner form of ranked choice voting. But that was a, a, a people's revolution of sorts in Maine. It was done through the initiative process over uh, uh, the objection of the Republican Party and some in the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, uh, this is a, a moment in which, you know, I think we have to take this into our own hands and, and you know, there will be, I think, a ballot initiative in Alaska, potentially one in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's not going to come from the leadership of the parties. It's going to come from the people who say, I'm tired of having just two options and I'm tired of being in a dysfunctional political system. Now, I do think that there are some politicians who will get behind this. uh, And I think if you talk to members of Congress, you will find that life as a member of Congress is actually pretty miserable. And you have a lot of idealists who wanted to go into public service and sacrifice a lot because they wanted to solve some big problems. And they got to Washington and they realized that all of their time is spent uh, raising money and being mm-hmm. a, a just a rank and file partisan. And you know, I think a lot of them, although it's very hard for them to see beyond the immediate demands of winning the next election, uh, would actually find that they got to do a lot more of what they wanted to do if Congress were uh, elected through a a proportional multi-party system Mm -hmm. in which you would see fluid coalitions forming a lot more bargaining and I think a lot more problem solving. The fundamental reason why Congress is so dysfunctional is that both parties are trying to win this elusive narrow majority, which only is a possibility in this two-party system. But if you look at proportional systems, multi-party systems throughout the world, what happens? There's an election, parties get uh, different shares of the vote, and then there's a process by which they form a governing coalition. And yeah, sometimes that process is a little messy and it takes a month or two, but that's politics. Politics is not clean. Politics is about bargaining. It's about making trade-offs, and it's about finding a broad consensus that everybody feels good or at least good enough about. It's not about half of the country trying to impose its vision on the other half of the country and creating arbitrary divides and, 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 and divisive issues like flag burning or the caravan or whatever we'll argue about in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 
you know, and I mean, those are phony issues because those are issues that are intended to unite parties internally and divide parties externally. Uh, because one of the problems of the American two-party system, and there are many, and I should say another problem of the American two-party system, is that the parties themselves are these kind of broad, big tent coalitions. And you look at what we're discussing this as the Democratic primary is wrapping up. And you know, it's clear that there are some folks in the Democratic Party who want a, a much more progressive Democratic Party and some folks who want a much more moderate Democratic Party. And while they might not agree on a lot of policy, they agree that Donald Trump is terrible and he needs to be defeated. And so that will unify the party, a lot of negative uh, campaigning against Trump. And then if Democrats manage to uh, win the White House and get enough votes to have a majority in the Senate, then all these divisions will come back and the party will actually not get a lot done because they're trying to hold together to win the next election and they're trying to draw a sharp contrast. So a lot of issues don't get resolved precisely because parties want to unify against the other party. So it's just this escalating doom loop, this reinforcing hyperpartisanship and uh, mm-hmm. got to do something about it. And the time is, you know, the time is ticking. Uh, you know, a few more, a few more hyperpartisan elections, and I'm not sure we'll have something that we recognize as a democracy anymore. Well, I think what what happens too, and, and I think you brought this out on one of your one, one of your previous podcasts, um, that uh, when too much power is ceded by Congress because they're busy fighting each other, that uh, it really gives the president an opportunity, or some would say it doesn't give the president any choice, but I think it more or less gives the president more opportunities to begin grabbing more power and you know the, the the executive orders and things like that start to be implemented and it uh, seems like congress is so uh, tied up in knots that they can't really get um can't really wrestle that power back from the president so yeah i think we we start to skew ourselves more toward a uh, um uh, maybe a single per monarchy or something of the, i can't think of the exact term right now but you know a single person rule uh, autocracy yeah um yeah, I think it's not just. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of a lot of reinforcing factors that go into the centralization of power in the presidency. Uh, certainly, some of that is is gridlock that Congress doesn't act and the president does. Uh, a lot of that is just that the parties in Congress, their the in, their fates depend fundamentally on the popularity and success of the presidency. So when Barack Obama was in the White House, Republicans in Congress said, we want Obama to fail because mm-hmm. we want Americans to reject the Democratic Party. Now, the Democratic Party has said, we want Trump to fail because we want Americans to reject the Republican Party. Uh, and so there's no incentive to bargain and to work together. And, you know, Trump knows that the Democrats have no interest in helping him. Uh, so he becomes belligerent. Obama basically eventually figured out that Republicans had no interest in working with him. So he goes and does everything he can through executive orders. Uh, and because Congress is disinvested in its own capacity, they, Congress doesn't have a ton of ability to fight back. And also because it, or in order to actually do anything, Congress needs to, to build a, a broad majority, which is impossible to do in uh, a closely divided hyperpartisan system. It, it can't really do anything anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get executive power by 
congressional dereliction, and then as the importance of the presidency grows, because Congress is dysfunctional, then more attention goes on to the presidential uh, campaign and uh, the popularity of the president. There's more and more focus. I mean, we now have, have a, a primary season that lasts two years of a, of a four-year presidential cycle because there's so much importance placed on the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really dangerous because it just turbocharges the winner-take-all uh, aspects of our politics, makes it even more zero-sum, and, and undermines the bargaining that is essential for our government to function. And Congress is the the only institution that is capable of, of representing the diversity of a, of a quite big and broad and diverse pluralistic country. I mean, America should be a pluralistic democracy. Uh, and you know, that means that lots of voices have to be represented. And that is messy, but that is the way to maintain a legitimate system in which bargains emerge from different voices being included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, proverbial horse trading. The um, We've been talking with uh, Lee Drutman, a author uh, and author of many articles and books focusing on money and politics, identity and polarization in our political structure, voting, the electoral system, Congress, and the art of American policymaking and more. His most recent book is called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. So uh, sort of continue with what you're saying right there. Uh, You you talk a lot about having a multi-party system. Is that, um, can you sort of uh, discuss why you think that a multi-party system would help us out today? Or is that part of a much larger solution? Or is it the main part of your solution? It is the main part of my solution. Uh, You know, I think... There is a real problem in American politics, which is that we are artificially divided by a party system that makes us seem far more divided by uh, emphasizing the uh, divides between rural America and urban America, Um, because it is a binary party system, and so in order to have elections, parties have to disagree over something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to have an election over the thing that parties agree over. And so we're emphasizing the things that divide us on the most zero-sum potential conflict, which is a fundamental conflict of American national identity of who are we? Mm-hmm. Are we a, a, a country of immigrants, a global cosmopolitan nation? Uh, or are we a traditionalist white Christian nation? Uh, and that is a, an incredibly dangerous zero-sum conflict. Now, in reality, I think most Americans would say, well, you know, we have some important traditions that we should recognize, but, you know, immigrants can be a part of that. But because of the way that elections happen and the way that partisanship is organi- organized, uh, there's no real space to, to find that, that middle room in that debate. And so people get uh, engaged in partisan teamsmanship and, and come to, to view part of their identity as fighting for a very strong vision of that if they want to be engaged in politics. Now, it's not to say that democracy is 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 easy or would be perfectly solved if we had a multi-party system. And one needs only to look across the pond and look at what's happening in Europe. And many democracies there are going through similar challenges of, of 
urban versus rural conflict of dealing with uh, the, the aftermath of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll see how the coronavirus uh, affects politics there as well. But what the European party systems have going for them that we don't is they have a flexibility that new parties can emerge as old parties seem irrelevant and that different coalitions can shift to build uh, majorities in changing times and different parties can offer different answers to uh, questions of changing demography and changing economies uh, and give voters a way of kind of thinking through these questions in a way that's not so binary, not so zero-sum, and not overly simplistic. Politics should be complex. This complexity forces us to think, and it should be fluid because we shouldn't get too fixed in any one set of ideas. Uh, the other thing to think about in the, in the European versus American context is that there are far-right parties, and they are, you know, throughout Western European democracies. But at this point, uh, the the populist parties of Western Europe are actually not that popular uh, Uh and may not ultimately be that popular. They're about 15 to 20 percent in in recent elections, which, you know, sounds high. But then you think, well, 80 percent of people are rejecting those parties. And because there is a multi-party system, uh, centrist coalitions or different coalitions can form. Uh, to keep those parties out of government, or if they come into government, they're they're significantly defanged by being part of a coalition. And often, once they get into government, they lose their appeal entirely because then they're no longer outsider parties. Now, if you think about the rise of Donald Trump in American politics, Donald Trump got about 30% of the vote, or was supported by about 30% of Republicans in the primary. Republicans are about 40%, including leaners. you have a basically a 12% party, but by winning a plurality of a plurality, uh, which is by winning the plurality of votes in the Republican Party and then winning the plurality of electoral college votes in the mm-hmm. election, uh, he takes over the Republican Party. And Republicans who had previously said, we don't want Donald Trump, he's crazy, he's insane, uh, were left with nowhere else to go if they wanted to... Uh, remain politically relevant because they can't be a third party because there's no opportunity for third parties. They're not going to be Democrats. Democrats aren't going to want them anyway. So they're left saying, well, we can make our peace with this guy uh, and, you know, and, and embracing that hyperpartisanship and becoming more hyperpartisan in order to defend him. Mm-hmm. So that is a terrible system. Uh, I mean, we, it, it creates all kinds of perverse incentives towards hyperpartisanship, towards extremism, uh, and towards escalating zero-sum conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the proverbial doom. I don't know how we can... Yeah, and if we don't do something about it, I, I have significant mm-hmm. genuine worries about where our politics is headed. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, because you, you're talking... It, my, my wife actually is uh, from the Netherlands, and so she... Uh, keeps me updated on what happens there. And it's, uh, it is, you know, you have multi-party systems there that um, they have to build coalitions. Nobody actually has a majority, so they have to build coalitions within the government. Uh, that does break down sometimes, though, but uh, it uh, it seems a lot more tempered than here. It just gets to the extreme, one extreme or the other here. So um, I see the advantages yeah, you're talking and, about. And the, and the Dutch have a, 
have have one of the most uh, hyper hyper PR systems. Uh, there was like twelve or thirteen parties, I think, for a relatively small country. They have a party for the animals, which is an animal rights yeah. party. They have a party for uh, seniors, uh, and you know, so people often point to Israel as a dysfunctional multi-party system, but actually the, the Dutch have the same more or less more or less electoral system as as Israel does, but the Dutch make it work. I mean, that may have something to do with the Dutch temperament uh, and, the, and the country being a relatively homogenous country ethnically, although less and less so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly the Dutch have had their, their experience with uh, far-right politics. Uh, Gert Wilders, I'm sure your wife pronounces that with a more uh, proper Dutch accent than I would. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but he was kind of marginalized. Uh, and Dutch politics has been, you know, pretty pretty stable centrist politics for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um, one of the things that I've, I was noticing about our political parties is that the um, the government is really ideally as set up by our founding fathers to be the body in which uh, debate takes place. And it seems like by now, by you know, by the, these days, by the time a party actually becomes uh, up for election, all those debates have already taken place, and they've already solidified their positions. So, where does where does this debate take place, or does it take place? Does it take place deep within the party itself before the elections, or, or how does that work? Well, it does take place within the parties, and we see that in the Democratic primary. Uh, you know, there's a Useful distinction when thinking about legislator, legislatures, uh, political scientist uh, named Nelson Polsby, who was a professor at Berkeley where I did my PhD, uh, he, he had this distinction between legislatures as, as arena legislatures and legislatures as transformational legislatures. And arena legislatures are legislatures where parties go in and they just fight. There's no political process. There's no debate. There's no deliberation because everything is is agreed upon in, in advance within the party, and then they're just fighting. Trans- transformational legislature is a legislature where people go in and deliberate and bargain, and they don't have fixed positions. And in 1975, when he wrote this article, he described the uh, U.S. Congress as a transformational legislature because members went in and bargained and came out with something very different than uh, they began with. Uh, the U.S. Congress has moved from a transformational legislature to an arena legislature. Uh, and it's, you know, we've seen the death of deliberation. Now, the question, and you know, something that I struggle with, is how much deliberation can we have? How much deliberation is desirable? Endless deliberation uh, means no action. Mm-hmm. So we've got to find some sort of balance. Uh, how many how many days should we spend debating a bill? How should the process happen? I mean, I think it's better when it happens from a bottom-up committee-based process than it does from a top-down legislative process. So uh, I I don't know the answer to that. I think Congress is dealing with a lot more issues now uh, than it did in 1787 or would have been expected to. A lot bigger country, a lot more diverse interests in this country. Uh, So I don't think we can expect the level quite the level of deliberation that maybe the framers would have thought about, but certainly we should have the ability for things to be more flexible and fluid. And, and, you know, I think the problem with a top-down two-party system is, you know, 
we know going in what Democrats are going to try to try to do. We know going in what the Republicans are going to try to do, and we know they're not going to bargain with each other. And if one party is the majority, they're going to try to impose their will. Except that there are occasional moments, and we're recording in the midst of one, where uh, you know, the uh, crisis strikes and Congress has to act, and then there's this interesting moment of of deliberation and debate. So proves it's still possible when the exigencies of the situation demand it. But most of the time, it's just about winning the next election. And even now, it's about winning the next election. But perhaps there's also something larger, like keeping the U.S. economy afloat and making sure a million people don't die. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that pressure in in this COVID-19 catastrophe we're having right now is uh, being driven from the edges, though. It seems like there's a lot of uh, uh, local uh, political leaders, you know, your, 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 your mayors and your, you know, all the way up to the governors are actually making these these decisions because, you know, the central federal government is, is uh, at least insofar as the executive branch is concerned, has been pretty slow to catch on. They seem to be catching on now, though, but it, uh, it's been taking a while. Yeah, well, this is what happens when, I mean, I think this may be more of a function of President Trump having denied that this was an issue for some crucial weeks and a bunch of governors and mayors saying, uh, no, this is an issue we need to act now and we can't wait for, for central leadership. Trump, you could say that Trump is a function of our broken political system, which I think is uh, largely accurate, but... I mean, sometimes the situation is the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, we I I know that you're part of the uh, uh, New America organization. Could you give us a brief description as we sort of wrap things up here? Um, What is the New America? What is its mission? And um, how can people get involved? So New America is a think tank in Washington, uh, D.C. And our, our short version of our mission is that we want to renew America. Uh, and I'm in the political reform program, and we are thinking about ways to make American democracy work better, uh, for it to be more representative, more responsive, and more accountable. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, we have a website, and people can go to newamerica.org, or people, perhaps a better way to connect is to just follow me on Twitter, at the Drutman. Um, Okay, and that's uh, your your spelling of your name is is D R U T M A N L E E D as in David R U T as in Tom M A N, uh, and you know people can uh, tweet me there or uh, go to my website leedrutman.org. Okay, that's a good website because it has a, a kind of a branch out point to a lot of the articles that you've written lately. Yeah, yeah. Okay. My recent articles, some recent interviews with me, uh, and you know, check out my podcast, Politics in Question. Okay. And uh, again, that uh, New America is uh, is all one word, newamerica.org or www.newamerica.org. Okay, Lee, well, I appreciate you dropping in with us and uh, talking with us today. Well, I appreciate this conversation, and I'm glad that you found my book so dense with insight that you had to sit down and, and meditate on it. That's an incredibly high compliment. 
yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot to take in. Uh, usually when I read a good book, a good novel or something, I can't put it down, but this one is, it's, uh, it's so densely populated with all kinds of really good information. I really just have to put it down and think about it for a while and then pick it up later on. Yeah. Well, I was certainly trying to find the balance between making it, it readable and packing a lot in because there's a lot to the story of how we got here and how we get out of it. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. And you've described it very well too, by the way. Anyways, um, so we've been talking with Lee Drutman, uh, an author of many articles and books focusing on money in politics and uh, identity and polarization in our political structure, voting, the electoral system, Congress, the art of American policymaking, and more. And again, his most recent book is called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Thanks again for dropping in, Lee. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so, so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.